Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. Hey, good morning, Collective. Uh, Every time I see that Steph Curry highlight, I just get excited. I remember watching that live. Uh, Now I think, uh, if if you're an NBA fan, the Damian Lillard shot where he ended OKC this year. Oh, man, that that does the same thing. Just gives me chills. Um, Well, I I just want to say, first off, thank you for having me here today. Um, If we've not had the chance to meet, I've met a lot of you over the past couple years. My name is Austin. I'm the associate pastor at a church in Baltimore called The Foundry. Uh, we started, we'll, we'll be celebrating six years this fall, so we're just a few years ahead of you guys in terms of that. Um, and we understand the grind of mobile church and all of that, uh, and setting up and tearing down every single week. Um, since you guys launched a couple years ago, my wife and I have had the chance to be here probably a handful of times. We were here launch Sunday. We, we've come and we've served in the kids area. I've preached one time. We've served back in the production area. Uh, and so I say all that to say I am very, very excited for what is happening here. I am very excited to see and to hear about stuff like grocery store buyout, to hear about the lives that are being changed in this community. Uh, Michael is one of my closest friends uh, and we get to talk about once a month. We get to grab lunch together. And when we do that, hearing stories about change that's happening in this city and in this community is just very, very, very exciting. Um, so I, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that, that I have the opportunity to speak uh, today. So uh, when Michael proposed a few uh, months ago, talking through this series, the concept of this series, he was like, well, I'm going to talk about basketball. So I was like, well, that's out, even though I love basketball, ruin the game, and going with that concept. So then my mind began to go to what are some other uh, ways that maybe I've seen things ruined, industries ruined, or, or things. And so I, I immediately thought of like things like Netflix and Uber and, and how that's changed the game have ruined the game for uh, things like uh, the audio auto industry. I, I thought of um, music was was a big one. I'm a big music fan. Um, I thought of guys like you know Tupac and Nirvana and uh, Bob Dylan and just the impact that they have had in, in all of these like subgenres that we have in 2019. Um, and then my family went on this trip, and I was like, well, this is a story. That's too good not to connect here. Um, and, and so my family and I, um, I'm, I'm currently in grad school. Uh, you'll see a picture of my wife and I. Uh, we've been together since we were in high school. We've been married for nine years. Um, and then we have three little kids, uh, Micah, who's five, Penny, who's three, and Sophie, who's one. Uh, they run around crazy all the time. Um, so I, I'm currently in, in grad school. And in May, we kind of finished up the semester. My son is uh, just finished up pre-K, and so we, we decided, hey, let's, let's get away for just a couple days, just to reset, spend some family time, because when you're in grad school and working, there's not a ton of time for family, um, so let's do that, and, and as we were preparing to go, which I'm sure you guys have all heard this if you've been on vacation before, so many people who know just our life situation, what's going on there, are like, I hope you have a relaxing trip, I hope it's so restful, so recharging, rejuvenating, and there's a few people in this room that probably are parents of young kids, and they're like, yeah, have you ever been on vacation with young kids? It's like the exact opposite of restful. 
In fact, like, they've completely ruined what vacation was or what it's supposed to be. They've shifted it. And maybe you're a single person in this room and you're like, yeah, that one time I got stuck on an airplane next to a crying baby, so they ruined my vacation too. So you, so you get what I'm talking about. Like, um, so, so we, we go and um, <laughs> a few different things I realized with our kids that, that they just don't understand and why it makes it so that they actually ruin this, this relaxing vacation. Uh, first, they don't get budgets. Believe it or not, my five-year-old does not understand a budget. So when we say, hey, we're going to go and we're going to play these games, he wants to play that balloon pop game like 18 times so he can win the smallest prize that actually probably costs like $2. And we, we've thrown down $50. I'm like, kid, no, like we have enough money for us to play it three times, and I'm going to play three times so we can win pr- one prize for each kid. You know, or, or another thing they don't understand is language, Right? When we say we're going to the beach, we don't actually mean that we're spending all of our time there at the beach. So when we arrive there after dinner, kids, we're going to bed. This is just another house we're going to sleep in. But they're like, well, it's, why aren't we going to the beach? You said we're going to the beach. We'll, we'll get there tomorrow, guys. Like, calm down. Um, and then it, a wrench is thrown in when it's like it's raining in Ocean City, and you're like, great. Whole concept's gone now. Um, and, and another thing that they, they don't understand is just basic physics, right? Because we walk through the aisles of Target or Walmart, and every single one of these toys that they can play with in the sand and in the water, they have to have. We have to take it with us. And so, like, I've got a bag that's full of toys. I've got another bag that's full of snacks because, again, they can't wait till whatever time to actually eat. So we have to have 15 different things just in case they want something different, you know, and 15 bottles of water. You know, I've got one kid on my shoulders, I've got another kid in my hand, and then our third kid is like playing Frogger across Philadelphia Street. Like, they just don't understand it. They don't understand that this is supposed to be a relaxful, relaxing vacation. We're supposed to be recharging and rejuvenating together. They, they kind of ruined, <laughs> ruined what that was, right? Um, but, but what it's done is it, it's, it's shifted the lens of what vacation really is to being more about having this experience and having fun together than necessarily relaxing and rejuvenating. And it's challenged us to have, um, have those uh, rhythms in our daily, daily life and weekly life instead of just banking on it once a year or twice a year. So, so today, uh, as we talk about ruining the game, we're going to talk about a story uh, from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but before we dive into to Luke 8, I want to give just a little bit of the context of where this story takes place. So the Gospel of Luke is written by a guy named Luke, if you didn't know. Uh, Luke is the first part of a two-part story. There's part one, which is the Gospel of Luke, and part two, which is the book of Acts. Luke tells the story of Jesus from Luke's perspective, which he has gotten from Paul and a bunch of other guys because he traveled as a companion on Paul's missionary journey. And Acts is the story of the church, the first church, the early church, what they did after Jesus ascends to heaven. Um, so they literally, if you read them back to back, it reads like, okay, well, part one's done now. Okay, part two, right? So uh, in fact, like the first few verses of Acts, Jesus is in it. Uh, and it's kind of like that, that recap of like, remember on the last episode, Jesus is alive. Um, so uh, Luke is also a doctor by profession. We see that in some of his language. He's very precise in the words that he uses. He also uses a lot of uh, medical terminology. He also is writing to an audience that has a good idea of what the Old Testament scriptures are. 
They are an audience that, that if he says characters from the Old Testament, if he talks about stories, if he talks about different laws, they just get it. There's no, like, explanation here or there. He just knows that they understand. So there are times that you'll be reading through something, and you're like, whoa, 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 what did you mean by that thing? Or how how'd you connect this story to what's happening here? And Luke's just like, well, for my audience, they get it. For us, it takes a second to, to intertwine. Uh, we're a little less familiar with the Old Testament. So um, today's story is in Luke 8. And Luke 8 is at the very end of Jesus' gospel, or Jesus' uh, ministry in this region called Galilee, uh, which is a region that he did ministry in, most of the Gospel of Luke. After this, he'll have chapter 9 in the same region, and then after that, he'll go on to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be crucified and raised. Uh, and so we're picking up in Luke 8 today, uh, verse 40. You can follow along on the screens. You can pull out your phones and follow along as well. Um, the, the translation that, that you guys use here is the NLT if you're following along on your phone. Um, so we're going to read through a little bit. I'm going to stop. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary. Keep reading. Stop, etc. So, um, all right. Verse 40. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader in the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. And as Jesus went with him, he, sur- he was surrounded by the crowds. So we're going to stop right here just for a moment and, and just explain a little bit here. So Jesus is off preaching, still in this region of Galilee, but he's on the other side of a lake. Uh, and he comes back. And when he comes back, he travels across, and immediately this swarm of people surrounds him. You know, this swarm of people, uh, one of the people that's in there is this man named Jairus. This, this community has heard the stories of Jesus. They know the reputation of him for healing and, and caring for people and, and the teaching that he's doing, and they want to see it for themselves. And 2019, I'm sure you can experience that as well. Um, so Jairus, uh, one of the misconceptions about him a lot of times is that he is actually one of the religious elite, but he's actually not. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee, but he's a leader in the local synagogue more like a lay leader, someone who, who has a profession outside of the synagogue and then comes and he serves in a capacity in that. He's a leader within the community. So he's seen as kind of like a societal elite. He's not a religious elite, but a societal elite, right? Uh, Jairus is this man, and he comes and his daughter is sick, and his response to Jesus is to fall on his face in front of Jesus, And here, he demonstrates that Jesus is an authoritative figure. He demonstrates that Jesus can heal his daughter and that he believes in this. So let's keep reading here. Verse 43, it says this. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. All right, we're going we're gonna to stop there as well. So give some context for this woman. This woman, who again is, is unnamed, she's not given a name here, she's just a woman, sneaks up in the crowd hoping to touch Jesus' robe. She doesn't want to be seen, she doesn't want to be heard, she just kind of wants to get in and get out. Maybe some of you are like that, that's, that's your goal with church today, right? Um, for 12 years she, she has been suffering from this bleeding and she's found no cure. Some other translations actually uh, give us the detail that she's spent all of her money trying to find doctors 
who can find a cure for her, who can help her out. And additionally, uh, this is one of those moments where Luke is like, well, people will know what I'm talking about. Uh, additionally, uh, in the Jewish law for a woman who, who is menstruating, uh, that person would be marked as unclean. And it's thought by most theologians that she suffered from uterine bleeding. And therefore, for 12 years, she's been isolated from community because being unclean means you're isolated from community. You're not allowed to be around the community. So, This woman who approaches Jesus, doesn't want to be known, is completely isolated. She's probably completely broke. She's uncomfortable, if not in pain, from the bleeding that she's experienced. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, someone deliberately touched me. For I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has been or made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the house of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use in troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. She will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew that she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. At that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. So oftentimes, when, when we read through the story, when we talk through this story, uh, one of the biggest themes that's pointed out is Jesus' power, right? We read through the story, and we see Jesus healing someone who is sick and has been sick for 12 years. We also see the story uh, of Jesus raising someone from the dead. So Jesus has the power over sickness. Jesus has the power over death. But today, I want to talk about a little bit different nuance of the story, focusing on the precision of Luke's writing, the details that he uses here, because it's fascinating. Luke, Luke is trying to show us uh, distinctions and similarities in this story. So let me, let me share a few distinctions as we kind of unpack what is being said here. So Jairus, Jairus is this man. He is a man who's a prominent member of community, He's, he's an elite in their society. Whereas this woman, who is nameless, has been isolated from community. She doesn't have people waiting for her back at her house. She's all alone. She wishes to be alone. He, 
Jairus is pretty rich, or if anything, at least well off. We know that because he has all of these people at his house, probably professional whalers is what they would have said in, in the first, first century, people to come and grieve. Um, and, and this woman is completely broke because she's been trying to solve this issue for 12 years. This man, Jairus, has honor to approach Jesus and confidence in doing that, whereas this woman tries to sneak through the crowd without being known. Right? And honor, honor in the first century was a big deal. It's the way that kind of we view uh, time and money here in America in 2019. How can I uh, spend the least amount of money but get the most out of my time, right? Uh, or gain the most money in the least amount of time. Uh, the woman publicly declares her story. Jesus calls her to do that, whereas Jairus is told, keep the story silent. But there's also a lot of interesting similarities between this, these stories that are intertwined together. First, the, the number 12, 12 years. It's been 12 years that this woman has suffered. 12 years she has had this bleeding, and it is 12 years that this girl was alive. She's 12 years old. There's also, from both of them, this desperation. We've exhausted the other resources. We don't know where else to go, so we're going to turn to Jesus. There's belief that Jesus can provide them healing in what they do. Uh, both, both of them have uh, those around them that seem to lack faith, asking the question of, well, why are you still bothering Jesus? And asking, um, well, of course someone touched you. We're in a crowd of people. There's people that are questioning it. Uh, and both of them take a posture of falling on their face before Jesus. So the question is why? Why does Luke include these comparisons and these differences? And what is he trying, what's he trying to say here? You know, he, he, he's talking about these differences from kind of the hierarchy of society, right? You have this guy who is a prominent member of the community. He is rich. He has all of these people in his life. And then you have this woman who is unclean, isolated from society. She's poor. She's broken. But then there's the similarities that Luke is bringing out about their submission to Jesus. Why? Because I think what, what Luke is trying to point out here is that our posture in relationship to Jesus matters more than our position in society. Right? This, this bucks against the system that, we, that we've been told. Right? From, from an early age in Baltimore, uh, it's even a little bit younger. But, but we talk to our kids about posturing yourself against your peers. Right? How do you stand out against other middle schoolers or against other high schoolers? How do I get into the college I want to get into? How do I pursue the career I want to do? Well, it comes from setting yourself apart. It comes from distinguishing yourself. How do I climb the corporate ladder or make a higher salary? Well, that comes from putting yourself a little bit higher. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those things are bad things at all. But... I think the problem is, is a lot of times we approach Jesus in that same manner. We approach Jesus and maybe we take the manner of, the, the, of Jairus and we're saying, you know what, Jesus, it had been really easy if he did this. Like, do you know who I am? Do you know how society views me? Do you know how much money I make? Do you know what I have done for this place? Whereas we have this woman on the other side who approaches Jesus asking the same questions, but in a much different way. Well, do you know who I am? Do you know how I've been hurt? How I've been broken? 
How every, every relationship I have, I'm isolated from. My family, I don't connect with anymore. We, we have the, these two different ways that a lot of times we approach Jesus in one or the other. This, this feeling of, Jesus, we have it all together. We, I don't even know if we really need him sometimes in the way that we act. And this other way of feeling like, God, you could never want anything to do with me because of my past, because of who I am. And in both cases, Jesus is standing there saying, yes, I want both. I want both of you. What I care about is your posture. He ruins the game. He ruins the game and these labels of society places us in, who society says we are. For both the woman and for Jairus, their faith and posture led them to restoration, led to Jairus' daughter being healed, led to this woman being healed from her sickness. And if we want to be brought into restoration, regardless of who we connect more to, the question is, is how do we assess our posture? So how do we do that? Well, the first thing, if we want to assess our posture, is we have to understand ourselves. Frankly, I think we do a poor job of really understanding who we are a lot of times. Because of that, we cannot understand who God is, and we definitely don't understand what, who God has made me to be or what God has called me to do. For some of you here, maybe you relate more to Jairus. You feel like you have it all together. You feel like, hey, from a societal standpoint, I'm in a pretty good spot. I'm elevated above the rest. And the problem here is I think a lot of us need to connect more to the words of Paul who calls himself the chief of all sinners. We like to think that our sin's not so bad over here. You know, and, and for some of us in this room, we, we connect more with this woman who feels unnamed and who feels isolated and disconnected, who feels like she has no one, feels like she can't connect. And from here, we need to focus on the detail that Jesus calls both of these people daughters, that you can be a child of God over here. Jairus uh, chooses not to gain, use his position to kind of barter with Jesus because he could. He could have done that. He could have said, hey, Jesus, I know this woman's just come up to you, but like my daughter's sick. Can we just move on, move ahead? But he chooses not to. He chooses to submit to whatever Jesus is, is calling for him, the timeline that Jesus has in mind for him. And this woman could have avoided Jesus. I mean, she tried to sneak through the crowd. She tried to not be noticed. But she could have avoided him altogether and not gone out. When we understand how God has wired us and we realize who we are, it bucks against what society tells us about ourselves, right? So uh, for me, something that kind of ruined my understanding of who I was was when I first took a personality indicator called the Enneagram. How many of you guys have heard of the Enneagram or taken it maybe? Just a couple. There's a lot more first hour. Um, so, the, so the Enneagram is a personality type indicator, not too different from Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, all those. Um, but what it does in particular is it tells you what are your motivations in relationships? What do you resort to in relationships? Um, and frankly, when I took it the first time, I was like, this is stupid. I got my results back, and I was like, this is wrong. This doesn't understand me. Uh, there's one part where it's like, 
calling, you know, telling you different things about yourself. And it's like, you may struggle to be a sloth. And I was like, a sloth? Like, can we get some, a different animal that's a little bit better than a sloth? You know, and, and you start going through and un- unpacking it. And when I unpacked it a little bit more, I started to realize more and more about myself. The things about myself that maybe I didn't know or that I had suppressed. I began to be able to ask the questions of, of why I do certain things here or why I do certain things there. Which then forced me to then deal with those things, right? So, so what did I do when I started to ask these questions? I started to, to wrestle with a little bit of who I am. Well, the first thing is I started to surround myself with people who brought out the best in me and people who challenged the worst in me. People who would compliment me and challenge me on ways that I didn't want to be challenged, but in other ways would encourage me to do the things I needed to do. Right? Actually, Michael is one of those people. Michael and I, if, you're, if you are an Enneagram person, Michael's an eight on the Enneagram and I'm a nine on the Enneagram, which means we're very, very different. Um, if you don't know what that means, you can look it up later. Um, but because of that, we complemented each other really, really, really well. We were able to wrestle with that and wrestle with uh, his directness and my lack of directness. At the same time, uh, I was challenged then also to work on it through counseling. You know, at the, at the Foundry, our church home, uh, we talk about counseling all the time because we think counseling is incredibly important and something that can really challenge us to live out our faith and understand how God has wired us. And so, caveat, if you are not seeing counselor, if you've never done that before, I'd encourage you to do that. I'd love to connect you to some organizations uh, that, that do that. Um, but counseling was so, so, so critical uh, in me being able to wrestle through these things. We began to ask the questions of, well, why do I do this thing? Why do I resort to giving this person power? Or why do I respond this way uh, when my kid does this or when my wife does this? And we begin to wrestle with that. And after you ask the question of why I do that, then the question comes, well, what am I going to do different? How am I going to change? I spent time wrestling through that and talking through that. Um, full disclosure, at this point in my life, I actually I go see a counselor every single week. Um, it's that important to me. Um, so when we begin to then understand who we are, the next step, which I just alluded to a little bit, is to realize the barriers that are getting in between us and Jesus, that are getting in the way of us falling on our face before Jesus, being desperate in front of him. Because many of us in this room don't realize how desperate we actually are. That we are enough to come before Jesus, but that we also are desperate enough to only need him. Right? There's this guy um, named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, um, who, who is a pastor, um, who speaks about this. And, and he talks a lot in one of his books about dying to self. Because that's what discipleship ultimately is. It's a dying to self. And another argument that he has in one of his books, uh, this is from a book called Discipleship. Uh, or the cost of discipleship, uh, depending on which translation. Um, but, but from this book, one of the arguments that he has over and over again is, is this idea that only believers obey and only obedient believe. This idea that a lot of times we go, does obedience come before faith or does faith come before obedience? And what he's saying is, yes, two sides of the same coin. And what we see from this story is that same thing, that when the woman approaches Jesus, 
She has the obedience and the faith. And when Jairus approaches Jesus, he as well has this. When we realize the things that are getting in the way of us uh, approaching Jesus and dying to ourselves, it opens up the door for what God can actually do, how God can speak to us, what he can call us to then do. This is what discipleship is and why we have to understand ourselves before we die to ourselves and our own desires. Because a lot of times we are so attached to this world and we're so attached to the things that bring us comfort that we don't even realize it. We don't even realize the attachments that we've made and the ways that we've, we've elevated a good thing to be a God thing and then held us back from who Jesus is and what he's calling us to do. And what's hard about this, a lot of times that we don't talk about, is that it's different for every single one of us. There's a general calling of dying to ourselves, but there's a specific calling that God has for your life asking you to give up something, to die to something. And that's for you to wrestle with God and figure out what exactly that is. And maybe you should surround yourself with a counselor and a good friend to call out some of that stuff too. Uh, The last thing uh, as we kind of land the plane here um, that I just want to encourage you with is, is in this we have a choice. You know, the woman could have avoided Jesus. Jairus could have avoided Jesus. But both of them chose the submission to who he is. In the same way that we can choose to hear and to lean into how society labels us, to what society says about us, or we can allow God to ruin the way that society has boxed us in. We can can be defined by our greatest successes. We can be defined by our worst failures. We can find our identity in our work and in our kids and in our wife and, and in our friends, in our job, in our career. Or we can find our identity in Christ. You have a choice. A choice to listen to what everyone's telling you or a choice to listen to what God is telling you and what he's calling you to do. You can listen to the voices that are saying you're unworthy, that you're unclean, or that you are the best person in society. Or you can listen to the voices of God saying, trust me, you're a child of mine. So, Back, back to the beach, um, we, we got there, and, and again, kids don't understand vacation very well. Uh, we get there, and of course, it's raining the entire time we're there. Um, and, and we had a moment where we could go, okay, well, we can go out to the beach and it's raining. We can stay inside and be miserable, or we can adapt. We can change. We can work through things. Uh, and it turns out that the best part of the trip was actually like an indoor bounce house that our kids went to. Uh, while we were there, um, which is how it always works with kids, you know. We stopped listening to the voices that defined what vacation should be. We we realized that our ideas of what vacation should be and shouldn't be really had to change. They had to die to what I wanted and choose what was best for all of us, for our family. And we had to understand and accept what the new idea of vacation was, redefining it. We had to relearn about what this term was. In the same way that we have to learn who we are, we have to die to ourselves, and we have to choose to listen to what God is calling us to do. Would you pray with me as we conclude? God, I I thank you for who you are. I thank you for who your son is. I'm thankful that, that you call us to something bigger, to something better, 
that you, you say that we are enough, but at the same time you call us to die to ourselves and our own motivations. You help us have a voice to listen to, and you give us rest when nothing else feels like it can provide that same rest. In Jesus' name, amen.